Some of the looking into the extra bits, like you know that throwaway bit, he was put in debtor's prison. Mm-hmm. I've read all about the debtor's prison he was put in, and it's amazing. As soon as you went in there, they basically started taking shit from you. The jailers were corrupt as all get out. And it's like, as soon as you walked in, they'd take your coat, and you know, you're a bit flummoxed, so they'd sort of take your cloak from you. And it was just like, yeah, you're never seeing that again. Yeah, they're selling it. Yeah, and you start off, if you were rich, you could go into, there was like a a posh knobs bit and they'd start just taking all your money for everything everything costs you something oh it's like a tax <laughs> yeah and then once you don't have enough money to stay there anymore in the nice bit you move down to the knight's quarters which is still quite nice and then once they'd rinsed all of that money you ended up in the hole which oh, is what gosh. it was called yeah, yeah. and it sort of like had the open sewer running through it but you do get a tennis ball and a, and a flat wall to bounce yeah. it off oh if only yeah <laughs> <laughs> Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story begins in the Georgian era. Oh, I've got a thing from Kate. Your soon-to-be wife, Kate. Yes, um, she's been listening to the podcast and when the music comes in... Yes. Let's get started with... Yeah. So you should come in at that point with the title of the story. But that would give away who it is and might give away some of the... But you've set it up, so let's get started with... Like, it should come in, the Mexico disaster. No. No. Let's get started with history. No, because it's... Let's get started with, and then it just goes straight into... Oh, I'm just... Are you okay? No, I've got... My leg's gone dead. I like it better that way. Well, you can explain to Kate. I'll have to. (laughs) Can can I start? For the third time. (laughs) This story begins in the Georgian era. And your three words. Horatio. Bosch. Bleaching. And balaclava. You got nothing. I can see the vacant stare in your eyes. I'm I'm so disappointed in myself. Because I think the only one I've ever got was the Southport one. Yeah. And that's because I happened to have lived there for a, for a long time. Well, don't worry. You won't have lived in any of these places. You're making them too hard. That's the point. It must have been difficult being a Scottish person and finding yourself posted to Jamaica. What with the pale skin. Yes propensity towards sunburn and love of drizzle Um, but that was the position that Lieutenant James Grant found himself in in 1805 like posted like in what way Uh, in in the big box well in in that we um, we were you know I don't want to say owned Jamaica but we'd colonised Jamaica let's say and we were helping to run it Um, so we needed the army to do that so we posted members of the army over there and unfortunately for James Grant he got the call he yeah. was going over to a tropical paradise poor he, bugger he wasn't upset was he it's lost to history he might have been he might not have been but possibly as a means of escaping the unforgiving Caribbean sun James spent quite a bit of time in a lodging house by the name of Blundell Hall the proprietress was liked by members of the British Armed Forces as she was not just the owner of a nice place to stay, but was also a practitioner of Caribbean and African herbal healing. Mm. 
So she was a medicine woman as well. The Caribbean is a biodiversity hotspot. So local healers have a lot of plants to choose from to make their herbal remedies. Aloe vera. Yeah. You know about that one. Use it for everything. Yeah. Senna. Pooping. Yeah. And coconut oil were readily available. Good for your hair. Yeah. It's a conditioner. And as an inadvertent can, consequence. Oh, clean so, your teeth with it. You with can coconut use it as, oil. You can use it as a mouthwash. Because it draws out all the moisture out of your mouth. Do you really want an unmoistured mouth? No, it, no, it draws all the saliva out, but then conditions your gums. Honestly. The way you're smiling, I'm not sure about that. Okay, so... Why? Because of my bloody gums. <laughs> <laughs> you've, got, you've got coconut oil, which possibly can be used as a mouthwash. I'm getting two pastries uh, next week. <laughs> but as an inadvertent consequence of various occupiers through the years... Uh, ginger, turmeric, sorrel, and others were added to the mix. Sorrel? Sorrel, yes. The plant, sorrel. Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. it was just the British. Well, no, but as people uh, inv- invaded, as people took over Jamaica... What a gift. They brought different things to, to you know, because they wanted them from home, or mm. they, they, they saw a benefit. And it seems like pretty much anything will grow in Jamaican soil. Um, so they were added to the options for mixing various medicines. Though, of course, it did come with a side order of slavery. So... They, they got a few more herbs and you know yeah. plants, but they also were enslaved. The healers of Jamaica also believe that keeping things clean and promoting a good diet were essential. What year are we in? We're in 1805. That's quite amazing. Mm. So, yeah, there's all of these herbal remedies, but also the Jamaican healers believed cleanliness and a good diet were also important to recovery, which was something that other surgical sort of medicinal backgrounds hadn't quite got round to yet. Uh, And as you can imagine, for soldiers and sailors enduring many months at sea to get there, the sudden access to clean conditions, good food, lots of vitamin D, obviously, from the sun, it often produced miraculous results, regardless of if the medicinal bits had any effect at all. But they definitely ascribed it to the medicines that they were being given. Oh, they didn't just think it was a magical place. No, they didn't think, God, I'm finally eating great food and... Oh, I'm dead. <laughs> I feel amazing. <laughs> uh, the esteem in which this practice was held increased greatly following the work of Cuba Cornwallis, who was another proprietress, uh, and she owned a hotel in Port Royal, which I believe was mentioned in the Pirates of the Caribbean series, just to make it... Oh, you're just reaching out. I'm reaching out to... Bringing people in. Yeah, the fan bases, you know, trying to make it a bit more mainstream. You should just pepper in popular um, films and and books. Well, Cuba started out as a slave to Captain William Cornwallis. Mice and Men. Yeah. Was William Cornwallis in Mice and Men? No, no, I'm just bringing people in. Okay. Because they'll think, oh, Mice and Men, I read that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in. I'm engaged. (laughs) So she started out as a slave to Captain William Cornwallis. Hence the surname that she got given, because slaves always took the surnames of their masters. Right. Which is lovely. Um, uh, but either way, he eventually freed her. They think they may have had a bit of a relationship, but that was, you know, neither here nor there. It was never proved. Although, how you prove it? Well, if, unless there's a, a, a son or no, daughter. No, there, there was no issue from, like from the him. union, right. as far as we know. But he freed her so that she could live a free life. Great. She didn't initially get very far. She continued to be employed by William. Right. So he freed her, which basically meant, continue doing what you do, but only I'll wage. give you a wage. She's great. 
Uh, but when he left, she travelled to Port Royal, set up her hotel and began providing healing to the troops who were stationed locally. Her reputation grew to the point that she was sought out by Lord Nelson himself. Though he wasn't um, Admiral at this time, he was just Captain. Did this he have was... a gammy leg? No, he had one arm and he had one eye. Right. Okay. So of all the things was... I picked, I picked... Yeah, legs were fine. Yeah. Um, did he have a gammy arm? He did. Oh. In that it wasn't there. All right, use that one. Okay. Uh, so he sought her out in 1780 while he was suffering a bout of dysentery, which isn't particularly nice. No. Yeah. She also looked after future King William the Fourth. I'm not sure what he was um, suffering from that brought him to her care. I don't know if it was galloping gut rot. Go on, what would you think? I mean, I'd, I don't know. Let's let's say he was just feeling a bit faint. And you you don't take chances with royals, do you? you yeah, he straight had into the private where clinic. his crown had been rubbing. <laughs> Is that a euphemism? No, no, he just had crown sores. Oh, well, I wouldn't know, having never worn a crown. Although the date of her birth is not known, this is, you know, Cornwallis, uh, it is likely that she lived into her late 90s when she died in 1848, which is, considering the time, that's a fair old age to get to. Especially if you spent the early parts of your life as a slave. When you're not- she's, she's in the know of how to keep healthy. Though, well, yeah. By this time, the local medicinal practices of the Caribbean were much respected by the British who were stationed in the area, and anyone who could provide this service found themselves in much demand. I'd love that job. What, being a healer? Just a, a bit of a shaman. Well, it's... It... And, and nicer that way, because you have shamans in, like, um, other cultures where they live apart from the rest of the society. These, these guys were like, if a shaman bought into capitalism, because they always, you know, they owned hotels, and they made most of their money from... Um, putting up the officers' room and board in a nice place, making them meals and stuff. This was like a side hustle that they had, which brought in some extra money. But also, it, you know, if you were the best healer, all the soldiers would want to stay at your establishment because if anything should happen to them, right. they want to have you on their side. So it was, yeah. So it brings them in. Brings yeah. them in, in the doors. They definitely bought into the English sense of, you know, um, entrepreneurial spirit. But there you go. Right. Anyway. Back to Blundell Hall in 1805. James Grant, our Scotsman. Oh, I forgot about him. Potentially bored at spending so much time indoors, hiding his pale Scottish skin from the sun. He began to spend more and more time with the owner, who was affectionately known by all as the Doctress. So much time, in fact, that the following year a daughter was born. Mm. Mm. As she had a white father, the little girl was born a free woman. Nice little technicality there. And was named Mary Grant. Cool. Are we following Mary? Is this Mary's We're following story? Mary Grant. I've got used to this. That we go through like five or six characters before we... Hit the person. That's the prologue, isn't it? So we're following Mary Grant, although she may not remain Grant. After infancy, she didn't live with her mother at Blundell Hall. Her mum was too busy. Instead, she was looked after by a local woman alongside her own children. Mm-hmm. So she was kind of fostered out. Uh, this appeared to be just purely a practical arrangement due to the amount of work her mum was doing because she kept in contact with her mother every day and um, by the age of 12 she was pretty much helping to run the business which is you know about the age that you want to get into your career 12 yeah uh, this included providing medicinal care to the British military personnel who must have been overjoyed 
when they're lying there, fever, and a 12-year-old girl comes through and says, I'll be your doctor today. <laughs> no. Shut up. Let me let me have a go. Yeah. I, I think I know how it's done. But Mary, she had a natural affinity for healing. She yeah. was good at it. And she reported in her memoirs that she used to practice her craft all of the time. At first, on her doll. Which obviously, you're not going to know if your results are... Yeah. Yeah, going to be good. Uh, then... On local animals in a very bizarre sort of reverse serial killer scenario yeah. <laughs> she'd take the local stray animals and heal, heal them. them and send them back out and then send them back out to be stray animals yeah. again yeah uh, eventually though she began trialing her concoctions on herself so she started mixing medicines. But she's working from a mother's recipes and stuff like that. I, yeah yeah She's working from what her mother's teaching her, but it's... she's not that at that stage in her life yet where she's in the experimental phase. Well, it's she's still, learning the craft. I think it's still experimental when you when you you know going. I'm going to take these things away. I'm going to go back to the place I'm staying. I'm going to mix them together in the way I think my mum mixed them together, and then I'm going to swig them down and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but it was probably at this point that her mum decided she would have to formally teach Mary. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Before she d- did some permanent damage. <laughs> it's like yeah it's one thing she's just watching me and I think she's picking it up I think I'm going to have to actually sit her down and yeah most of these plants are poisonous yeah Mary please just, just pay attention look at the slides yeah. I've got the slideshow up just learn cool. Mary was a good student and was well liked by those she looked after she also began working at an official military convalescent home on the side picking up the principles of European medicine from observing the military doctors as she worked so she started experimenting with the stuff her mum was doing and her mum sat her down and taught her and her immediate response from that was to go and just watch some European doctors do shit and then trial that where yeah, she yeah. hadn't had any formal training because she wanted to live on the edge. So it's home... home, home what is it? Homeopathy. That's that's what her mum's teaching. No, her mum's, her mum's teaching uh, traditional Caribbean medicine. So these... Yeah, these are sort of trial and error things that have worked over the years because we know, you know, things like aloe vera do have some healing properties. Yeah. Um, but then she went and looked at what the European doctors were doing and started trying to sort of in- integrate the two things together in her own head. Right. And trying to come up with a, a, a sort of holistic view of medicine. Is she going to be the mother of modern medicine? Well, let's read on. When Mary had an opportunity to go on a gap year to England, of all places, Gapia, at the age of 17. She, of course, spent it slumming around hostels and drinking. Lots of gin. No, she didn't. No. (laughs) No, she spent it picking up even more medical knowledge and even managed to structure her return journey in 1825 to ensure that she stopped off in Cuba, Haiti and the Bahamas in order to gain more knowledge of other healing practices around the Caribbean. So her entire trip was just a big, what other little medical things can I pick up? What other little tricks and tips can I find? She definitely had a an idea of what she wanted to be in life. Yeah. Yeah. At the age of seventeen she had this idea. That's quite amazing. What were you doing at seventeen? Um I was quite high. Yeah. Um no I wasn't I couldn't smoke anymore. Because it it made me sick. <laughs> Bless you. So I'd stop that. I was working in home base. Yeah. I was working at McDonald's. Anyway Content, Mary was, I said that a bit like Yoda, content, Mary was, that she had all the skills to eventually take over from her mother in the family, in the family business. 
Mary settled into the life of a healer. She even got married... So she's back in Jamaica now. Yeah, she's back in Jamaica. And she even got married to a man called Edwin Horatio Hamilton Seacole in 1836. See, at the top of the show you'd said Seacole. I think I could have got this. Yeah, well, that's why I didn't. I tried to string you out a little bit. Yeah. So, Edwin Horatio Hamilton Seacole in 1836. It was rumoured that he was the illegitimate son of Lord Nelson himself and Lord Nelson's mistress, Emma Hamilton, hence... Horatio Hamilton. Mm. If he was uh, actually the illegitimate bastard child or not, was a moot point, as he had a poor constitution and he died in 1884, despite Mary's ministrations. So whether she married him because she loved him or she married him because she saw a project, (laughs) a chance to practice her skills, we don't know. But before he died, he'd failed to run a general store and had been present at a mysterious fire at Blundell Hall. Did he set this fire? Well, we don't know, but I think she was better off without him. He was sickly, he couldn't run a business, and when he was around, things caught fire. You know, that's oh. that's not husband material, is it? <laughs> Are there any good points in history about this man? That's that's all you're getting. That's, that's, as far as you're aware, those are the three things you need to know about <laughs> that's, that's the <laughs> Edwin, <worry>. Horatio, Hamilton, Seacole. <laughs> like, we'll never make it into any history. No. But if we do... It'll be as 2D as that man's um, life has been written back. I don't know what I just said. I'm so tired. <laughs> Unfortunately, you got to cut that out. History's not kind to certain people, and it definitely wasn't kind to Edwin. Joe, you know I'm deliriously tired. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, we'll just carry on and we'll see how far we get. Okay. I've, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so shortly after her husband died. Mary Seacole also lost her mother, the Doctoress. But she refused to mourn and instead threw herself into the running of the new Blundell Hall that had been built since the fire, becoming a popular local figure amongst native Jamaicans and the British. She worked tirelessly to try and provide care during the cholera epidemic of 1850. People were dying so quickly at the time, mainly Jamaicans, this I have to point out, uh, that record, burial records for the time have many entries which just say unidentified followed by a number of between 25 and 75 depending on the size of the plot. So people, just, they were finding them in the streets. Yeah, they were dying so quickly that they were just digging mass graves, chucking them in and then just putting it down in the records as a bunch of miscellaneous people uh, in this pit. That was that was how bad it was. Overall, it killed thirty-two thousand people in Jamaica, which and I imagine was, the uh, population at the time wasn't that big. Yeah, this was a, a massive chunk of the native population decimated by cholera. Obviously, tired by her excursions, trying, as it turns out, without much success to help the people of Jamaica, she decided to visit her brother in Panama. Panama, yeah, in South America. Um, for a holiday the following year. But what should happen when she got there? There was an outbreak of cholera. (laughs) But, aha, now she's pre-prepared. She's seen what it can do. She's seen what works. Has she got a big bag full of ointments? Oh, she does. She has a lot of things that might work. And with the experience of the disease, Mary quickly gained a reputation for being able to save lives. She was sought out by the richest people who would pay her to heal them. She would then use the funds that they gave her to be able to hear, 
heal the poorer people for free. Oh, she's just wonderful. Isn't that lovely? And her treatment was essentially, I mean, it wasn't great. It was to purge people and then quickly rehydrate them. So she didn't quite know, because no one did at the time, the cause of it. But what she'd learned through trial and error was if you got them to vomit and shit everything out and then quickly rehydrated them so they didn't die of dehydration, that was their best chance. Um, Did it work? Yeah. Well, without antibiotics, it it was as good as it got. Right. Without the treatments that you'd normally use. How many years are we away from antibiotics? Oh, God, when's Fleming? We're, we're quite away. How, how far away are we from that mouldy bread? <laughs> far enough that Mary can't wait. <laughs> Let's put it right. that way. Um, though Mary did complain that many of the people in Panama succumbed without a fight. So her only com- her only complaint was the people in Jamaica at least fought the disease a bit harder. Right, they had, they had more minerals. Yeah, it was it was easier to treat the people in Jamaica because they'd at least try and help you out by, you know, wanting to live. Whereas the people of Panama would go, oh. I mean, was oh, Panama well. as an amazing place as Jamaica was at the time? Panama. I, I, how, how were the people? How were the population dealing with? Well, I'm assuming that this was the time when the Panama Canal was getting started, so they were on the up and up. Right. They were like a developing nation, and they would soon have that corridor of shipping that would make them quite quite important. Yeah. She did contract the disease herself during this outbreak. But she just went, disease! Yeah, yeah she fought back to health after a few weeks. So right. she, she just went, no, I have Be good gone. Jamaican constitution. Yeah. I'm not going to lay down like a bitch. Right. I'm going to get up and fight this bastard. Uh, her time in America was so successful. What do you call the, uh, like the Scottish? What do you call the people from Panama? Panamanians? I think it's Panamanians. Panamarians. I don't know, actually. The Panamese? I think it's Panamanians. That that works for me. All right. It scans. Well, if anybody knows, comment below. Yeah, please let us know, because we'd, we'd hate to get something wrong on this podcast. But her time in the Americas, so successful that one white American expressed a wish that there was some way that they could bleach Mary so that she could be acceptable in any company. Which I'm sure, when he thought it in his head, was a compliment. Yeah. Well, he didn't think it in his head, he just said it out loud and then and thought about what he just said. <laughs> but I'm saying I like you. you. You said it in a horrible way. I'm just going to take the sentiment and not actually think too hard on the words you just <laughs> used, sir. Unbleached, Mary returned to Jamaica uh, after a request from the local authorities in Jamaica to help during an outbreak of yellow fever because they just got over the cholera. Here's yellow fever. And unfortunately, although she got a handle on cholera by this stage, yellow fever was a much sterner opponent and she was unable to do much to prevent the epidemic claiming yet more lives. Is it brand new yellow fever at this point? It was something that Mary hadn't come across. Right. And she very much, without the formal medical schooling, was a trial and error kind of gal. Right. She'd do her best. Which needs a good six months. Yeah. And a lot of what she did was just basic hygiene. It was, let's keep the sheets clean. Let's make sure you're eating well. Let's get you out in the sunshine. Let's do all those things that are going to help people who would naturally beat a disease to beat it quicker. Right. With a few extra bits that she's learned and pulled in. So facing something new that she hasn't seen before you've got to go through that trial and error phase before she's going to get a handle on it. And unfortunately with this one, very quick, you know, she she didn't get the opportunities that she had with cholera. However, 
Well, perhaps it was this perceived defeat that led her to decide to travel to England again in order to volunteer as a nurse in the Crimean War. She was certain that she could help the soldiers on the front lines, especially after she read that the armies of both sides were being ravaged by outbreaks of... Bears. (laughs) Big bears. Yes, this is the story about when Mary Seacole fought the bear army. It's not. No. Oh. Outbreaks of cholera. But she's come across that before. Yes, this is in her wheelhouse. She's seen, they're they're suffering from cholera. I know what to do in this. She didn't do anything with the bears. Well, when presented, when the war office was presented with a woman who had first-hand experience of nursing people during two separate cholera cholera epidemics and who had travelled halfway across the world in order to offer her services... They of it looks course, a bit like a miracle, doesn't it? Yeah, they of course, like any sane person would in that situation, turned her down. I can I can understand why. Why? Because why are you turning Mary down? How do I put this? It's not. <laughs> it's, that, that sounded like I was about to be really racist. I was just trying to gather my thoughts. If if somebody, are, she's the perfect person. Yeah. And for her to arrive at that time with the experience she has, and she, there's no paperwork and all this stuff to go with it. It's based on her word. You yeah. would believe it to be bullshit because of how perfect she would be yeah. to have that person there at that time. Especially when they go, and what's your occupation? Expecting her to say nurse, and she goes, hotelier. Um, <laughs> yes, that's my main occupation, but I, I do nursing on the side. Too good to be true. Okay, well, they quickly. they obviously thought that because they yeah. turned her down. And like you say, they cited her lack of official references and lack of formal training as a nurse. She tried a few other means of getting to the Crimea with the support of British institutions, but was prevented each time. And this included an attempt to be included in a contingent of nurses under one Florence Nightingale. Mm. Mm. Seacole suspected that racism was playing a part in the decisions and was shocked to find herself being victimised more in Britain than she had been in America. Yeah. Yeah. Where they were at least practical enough to accept help from whatever quarter it was offered. Yeah. Yeah. They, they'd worry about the racism after they'd been healed. That's that's the time to do it. When you're fit and healthy, that's when you can really be racist and suggest people should be bleached. Um, it should also be noted, however, Florence herself wrote that she believed Mary was not suitable due to concerns that she would bring drunkenness and improper conduct to the nurses who were being sent out on the mission. Is this based on any evidence? Uh, Florence Nightingale wrote this down. Right. It's surviving record. No, but I mean, was Mary a bit of a drinker? Mary was a bit of a drinker. She liked a medicinal drink. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And in terms of improper conduct, she was one of the lads. She had a bedside manner that was very much... She'd grown up around soldiers... Uh, her entire life and treating soldiers and she'd been involved in the humour that goes along with a bunch of soldiers together so she was quite bawdy and you can imagine taking that bawdy Jamaican woman and plonking her into the middle of sort of you know Georgian British society she may have stuck out just a little a tad just just a tad undeterred because Mary's going doesn't matter if all of these people are saying she shouldn't, she's going. She called in a favour from her late husband's relative, Thomas Day. And the two of them agreed to a business venture. They planned to set up a hotel for officers and soldiers at Balaclava, which is actually in the Crimea. On her way, she stopped at Florence's hospital in... Just to give the, the Vs and... No, no, well, she had to stop over because Florence's hospital for 
people in the Crimean War was uh, actually in Skatari, which is in Turkey, which is about a thousand kilometres from the front lines and across the Black Sea. So between Florence Nightingale's hospital, where she treated the victims of the Crimean War, was a thousand miles of ocean. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's in a separate country. Right, so there was no one there. No, no, no. They shipped them over as they got injured. But, you know, she turned up at Florence's hospital in Turkey. I mean, on the boat, all the ones that are really ill. ill. (laughs) I'm really ill from a sword wound. Mm. They're just going to die. And it's the the ones that were going to heal naturally anyway by the time they get to Florence. Possibly. There's an argument to be made for that. So she turns up at Florence's gaff. uh, And because she had to wait for the ferry to get across to where the actual fighting was going on, she asked if she could bed down for the night. And although Florence didn't want her as part of her nursing, she was she was nice. She had loads of spare beds. She was yeah, she was perfectly civil and she said, Yep, yeah, you can stay. I'll even provide you with some breakfast tomorrow before you go on. And she even asked if there was anything more she could do to help Mary. Because at this point she could see Mary's going regardless to yeah. the front lines of a war. It's like it's do you need spare towels? Can I maybe a map? Yeah, a bottle of rum. Yeah. Maybe something, something for you. Uh, Mary declined. She voyaged across the Black Sea, straight to the front lines. Now, Florence was trying her best to improve the mortality rates at Scutari, but was hindered by the fact that the hospital was later discovered to be built on an open sewer. She would later discover that 16,000 of the 18,000 deaths recorded at the hospital... How can it be built on an open sewer? Well, it was built on a sewer. Right. So was... And parts of that were open. So it wasn't It wasn't like there was but an open built on trench an open sewer, sewer. Is it now a closed sewer? Well, technically, I suppose, yeah. But it's only closed by the fact that there's the boards of the hospital over it. It's just the gaps. Yeah. <laughs> with the wooden planks of the You could walls. look down and see the sludge. Oh, shit. But she later discovered that 16,000 of the 18,000 deaths that happened at her hospital were as a result of preventable illness rather than injuries from battle. Oh, God. Yeah. So being shipped over to Skatari, probably not the best thing if you were injured in battle because you had a massive, massively increased chance of dying from a preventable uh, acquired illness. Do you think word got back to the battlefield? No, this... Uh, Florence figured this out afterwards. We'll get into this, but Florence, she's she's very much a, a statistician, and a, she's very good at analysing things and taking the, the broader view and then narrowing it down to what practical applications that could have. So she's very much she's about the big a, data. She's a scientist. Yeah, she's a scientist. Mary who is not a scientist, arrived at her destination. And you know how I said she had a business plan? Yeah. This was about as far as her business plan had been planned. So she uh, began scavenging building materials. Did we go through a business plan? No, no. She just said that she had a business plan with her husband's, uh, her late husband's brother. Day. Day. The business plan was get to Balaclava. And then set up a business. Oh. And this is where she's got to. So she began scavenging building materials to set up a hotel, as you do. So she built a hotel from scratch. Right. She hired local builders. And by March 1855, she had cobbled together enough rooms to open the British Hotel. Yeah. One of her first visitors was a French chef called Alexis Soyer. Soyer. He had also gone to the Crimea to help. Uh, and he was helping by trying to improve the diet of the soldiers. French onion soup for everyone. Well. Gruyere. <laughs> I found 
when I am about to go into battle. Yes, I really do need only the finest French cuisine because that never sits heavy on your stomach. Ow. <laughs> oh, Mary. Baby Bell. Clocked he was French. Immediately offered him champagne. And in return for her impeccable manners, he advised her to concentrate on offering food and medical services rather than having people bed down in the hotel because her initial plan was to do exactly what she'd done in Jamaica where all the officers could stay and she'd just do the medicine on the side. But he suggested she'd make it almost into a mess hall where everyone could come and eat and she could offer all the rooms. She'd offer specific medical care in those rooms. Mary took the advice. So the hotel sort of changed immediately from being a hotel to a cafe slash doctor's surgery. But she didn't bother to change the name. Because yeah. she, you know, she workshopped that name. The British Hotel. That must have taken hours of... Uh, just to change the signage. Yeah. <laughs> it took her ages to scavenge those letters. Do you know how hard it is to come across a giant letter? In the in, wild. In a war zone. Does that look like a J to you? It'll do. Just hammer it up. Um, the hotel became very popular with the officers and soldiers. And they began referring to Mary as Mother Seacole. Ah. As they needed a mother figure out there, so far away from the comforts how of home. How old is she at this point? God, how old is she at this point? 18, How old is she at this 55? point? She'd be in her late 40s. Right, so she's, she, she could look motherly. Yeah, late late 40s, early 50s. And she's she's been living in, you know, exclusively areas with massive outbreaks of disease yeah. where she's been working all the hours God sends. So she's probably... She's living to 90 though, isn't she? No, that was... the that other, was her mother? No, that was just another woman who had sort of popularised uh, Caribbean medicine. Yeah, I got you. With the, with the... It was a predecessor. Yeah, Mary was kind of accepted more easily in the Caribbean because of the work this woman had done. Right, so right. by the time Mary came along, Caribbean medicine, at least among the British soldier, soldiers and sort of um, military, was quite well respected because they'd seen... Because of this trail. Yeah, they'd seen what happened. She lived to 90. I mean, God, it's like Methuselah back in those days. So, with thousands of surrogate children now, damn, Mary... All in their 30s. <laughs> all in their 30s, great. Uh, Mary felt she could do more, and she began taking supplies of food and medicines to the front lines in the aftermath of battles. Some people will report that she went into battle. And do you know of... how good that soup tastes? <laughs> what? You, you survived up... a battle, yeah, you, you were... wake up in a... You got woken up the night before... For the skirmish at nine. Yeah. <laughs> you've had a few hours sleep, 9pm, you've got to go out and fight. You're out all night, just it's just that red mist and fear and terror and adrenaline. And the smoke settling and this kindly and Jamaican woman. the following morning, it's really quiet, there's a robin <laughs> and this woman turns up with some soup. Would you like some, dear? Yes. Oh God, yes. <laughs> You're just looking around at the corpus, uh, corpses. This tastes really good. <laughs> Some people said that she used to regularly go out while battles were on. That's not true. She was under fire a couple of times, but I think that's because she'd mistimed turning up, basically. She thought the battle would be over. She turned up and there's still a few last-minute shots going off. And she's like, oh, shit. Um... But she would also treat soldiers on the battlefield if she saw something she could do. No, you know, like if they had wounds and they needed dressing. Oh, right. She'd sort of tourniquet them, try and get them back. Uh, A report from the Times at the time, 
the British paper, The Times, mm-hmm. uh, said, she is always in attendance near the battlefield to aid the wounded and has earned many a poor fellow's blessing. Because oh. so sometimes, even if you're there and you can see the guy's dying, having some kindly person... She's is, invincible though, isn't she? Yeah, in no way linked to the war. Just fussing over you and telling you everything's going to be all right and giving you some French onion soup. Yeah. There are worse ways to die on a battlefield, I posit. There's got to be something absolutely mega that kills this woman. Mm, well, well, we'll get to the oh, death. It's benign, we? isn't it? It's really... Mary would wear bright clothes on the battlefield so that the she soldiers... died from the die. <laughs> soldiers could easily identify used. her if she was needed. What was the last th- of the three words? Balaclava. We're, the, oh, we're in balaclava. There, right? we've, we've covered those because we had Horatio, her husband. We had bleaching the kindly American man with the incredibly insensitive comment. And we have Balaclava. She's there! We've covered the three. So, But she would wear really bright clothes, which, you know, as as battlefield attire... I mean, that being said, we were still in the period of time where the English were wearing um, red coats, so what are you going to do? Easily identify if she was needed. And she would also ensure that wherever she... Is it a bit like, um, you know, how journalists go out with with press written on them? Mm-hmm. Is she less of a target? People, she's obviously not a soldier. Well, she's obviously not a soldier, but also... There's got to be something she was doing that she wasn't killed <laughs> on the front line. I think the main point of it was she was always kind of trying to time it so that she turned up at the end of the battle. So she was like trying to be the first one on the field to try and look after the people. She wasn't like running... Right. She wasn't in the front line charge with the boys. Just go, yeah! We're in some myths Yeah, about her. Like, oh, you don't... Yeah. I think there definitely have been, both positive and negative. Um, oh, she fights bears. <laughs> but the she also, warrior. along with everything else, liked to ensure that she always had a pot of tea on the go for any soldier who needed it. So she'd also have a tea urn. Has she got a cart that she's... Yeah. Right. But she'd, she'd have all of her, like a medicine bag, she'd have loads of food, and she'd also have a tea urn. So It'd undermine the violence... What, a, a woman walking past with a tea in? <laughs> some beautifully colourful clothing. Yeah, just pouring you a pot of milky tea. <laughs> there you go. Have we got them lovely? Who, wants, who doesn't want a cup of tea? Yeah. After you've, after you've exerted yourself in any way, be it, you know, DIY or a battle, yeah. you want a party. <laughs> so you want, oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, because she was making tea, she quickly developed legendary status. Everybody knew about this woman who was walking around the battlefields of the Crimea handing out tea. Oh my God. And a kind word for anyone there. When the British and French forces took Sevastopol... Sevastopol... Should I do it in an accent? No, I do not. Sevastopol, Mary was the first woman to enter the city, making tea for all while tending to any wounded she came across. Although this was pretty much the end of the major fighting, because that was like the the prize plum to get. Mary continued to run the hotel until the soldiers left in July 1856. Her mission had only lasted just over a year uh, and she was now left with lots of provisions and no one to sell them to uh, because she refused to try and get rid of them until they weren't needed anymore. She was going to run this thing until the soldiers didn't need her, not until, you know, she wasn't going to get out when it was financially prudent to. She was going to get out when yeah, everyone else had left. She had a mission. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so she returned to England, very satisfied, but also completely bankrupt. Oh, no. Yeah. Mary was actually granted a certificate discharging her from bankruptcy. Yeah. 
in honour of what she'd done, but was unable to fund a further venture to go to India and tend to those wounded in the Indian Rebellion of 1857. So she almost wanted to franchise this. Like, any time England were in any kind of um, colonial-based warring situation, she wanted to be there with the cups of tea and the half-time oranges. That was her plan. She enjoyed it that much. Yeah. Well, I think she felt she was helping. That was her calling. That's what she wanted to do. Uh, but obviously, they didn't want to send her out again because she'd been um, she'd been hogging the spotlight basically from the you know from what Florence Nightingale had been doing. Right. Florence Nightingale's work. How dare she? Had been commissioned yeah. and was uh, sort of you know okayed by the the War Office, whereas Mary was the more well known and more popular figure and she'd self-financed she's gone rogue yeah but even though the government tried to forget about her the military couldn't and they helped to arrange a festival for mary called the seacole fund grand military festival to show their thanks for her work in the crimea but even though forty thousand people attended the organizers charged so much money to put it on that mary received the princely sum for a festival attended over three days by 40,000 people yeah. at 56 pounds. Which now is? It's not a lot, is it? 57 pounds oh, with inflation. Yeah. It wasn't a lot. So, And this is all to, like to fund. It was yeah. like a fundraiser for It was her. a fundraiser for her, but in order to put the things on, they'd spent so much money hiring the space, hiring the people to come and speak and do things and putting on everything else. You know what? I, th- I feel like she's such a, people person mm. that it didn't matter well no uh she, i don't think i don't think she'd she'd be up about it she wasn't particularly bothered because she just decided she'd make the money herself she's always been a self-starter anyway so she wrote her autobiography the wonderful adventures of mrs seacole in many lands it was the first autobiography written by a black woman in britain and it is bombastic entertaining and probably only has a passing resemblance to the truth she was she was a st- storyteller. She was a yarn spinner. She, she was, was a raconteur. She was a drunk. Yes, yes. but it's it's brilliant, and you can you read, read it? the entire thing on archive.org. It's it's a great read. It really is. You really get a sense of who she was and just how little she gave a shit about anyone telling her what she should and shouldn't be doing. Just, so anyway, I went and did it. Yeah, uh, some people don't have that. Um... That button in the head that tells him. <laughs> if everyone's saying no, I should probably heed them. She's just like, well, you're all to, wrong. To live fearlessly. She definitely did that. So Mary, she also wanted to continue her unique brand of nursing in future conflicts, like we've said, but was prevented from doing so by Florence Nightingale and others. The reason for that was they wanted to increase the scientific rigour of the nursing profession. I mean, that's fair and enough. Mary, as you've said, too much of a maverick in their eyes, to be let loose near another battlefield. Mm. So because she was short on funds and couldn't self-finance anymore, they just made sure that nobody would pay for her to go. Well, you want... Now you'd want Mary as your your nurse Mm. and uh, Florence as your doctor. Yeah, you want... Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's, yeah, personable. Yeah. Yeah. She's the kind of person that you want on the ward doing the day-to-day. She'd make you feel better. (laughs) sort of care and you'd want Florence to be the one looking over the test results and actually deciding what care should be given and you'd want Mary to be the one administering it she died in London in 1881 of old age nothing she was in her 70s 
Um, and she was promptly forgotten in favour of the more socially acceptable Florence Nightingale. It took a hundred years for Mary's story to be rediscovered, and she was... Uh, I like how you said discovered. Yeah, sorry. It took a hundred years for Mary's story to be rediscovered, discovered. and her reputation increased to the point where she was voted as the greatest black Briton in 2004. Oh, wow. There is now a leadership course for nurses in the NHS that bears her name. Uh, however, there are still people who believe that, as she was never trained as a nurse, she should not be given such prominence arguing that she was just a businesswoman who saw an opportunity to make money from the chaos of war. Happily ignoring the fact that she didn't make any money from the chaos of war and would often put herself into financial hardship knowingly in order to try and provide care for people. As you can tell, I do not agree with that sentiment. You don't have 40,000 soldiers, Mm. you know... They know you're sorry. Yeah. They know you're there. For, she's there for their care. For oh. good reason. My counter-argument would be the things that she extolled, good nutrition, cleanliness, and compassion for people, are still fundamental cornerstones of good nursing practice. Mary Seacole provided comfort and hope to many people, both in the midst of pandemics and during the horrors of battle. That she had to self-finance speaks more to the racism she faced than to any ulterior motive. And the fact that she was able to succeed shows the strength of her character and the value uh, that those that she tended placed on her and having her near them. If that is not enough, in my eyes, as a nurse, to be considered a nurse, then I don't know what is. The reason for some of the Mary bashing is that some people seem to think that you can either favour Florence Nightingale or Mary Seacole that praising one oh, yeah. is criticising the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Just because they had a bit of a... Yeah. yeah. However, yeah. as we've already spoken to, I prefer to see them as pioneers in two different areas of nursing. Is Florence on the £5 note? I don't know. It used to be. She might be. It'd be great if we just get the Queen off of the side and put Mary there. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Mary's going to be on a coin. Is she? I think she is. I'll have to check that afterwards. I'll, I'll put it on an Insta post. Nope, I was wrong. <laughs> She's not. But for me, Florence was pioneering statistical analysis, large-scale public health endeavours, and Mary was demonstrating the importance of the therapeutic relationship and encouraging mental well-being as part of the nursing process. So that is Mary Seacole. Beautiful. A woman. Just on that last point, do you want to interlink our fingers to show the relationship between those two ways of uh, healing? (laughs) No, I, d- I don't want to touch you during a pandemic, to be honest. <laughs> oh, oh, you're doing the, the like the, the arched fingers to the friend. Doesn't make a noise. No, it doesn't. It's funny that. But there you Thingies. go. That's, that's Mary Seacole. That's really good. Mm. A great person, regardless of whether she can actually take an official title. 